0: Thanks to The Breakfast Show once again for being there while we all scrape the ice off our windscreens this morning. But now it's time for Discovery. And this week, we'll be taking a peek at the physics of sport and planetariums. Stick around. Hello and welcome. 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 Stand and welcome.
1: Hello, good evening and welcome. To Discovery.
2: Discovery.
1: Discovery. Listen to Discovery. 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 Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space,
0: this may all be happening right now.
1: Now to the speeded up brain of the user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery.
0: Uh, Hello again, and welcome to Discovery, the national science show. I'm Matthew Clark, and this week we'll be exploring the laws of physics that that govern how we play sport and why we still sometimes look at the stars from inside. But before we can look into any of that, it's time for your weekly Discovery Science News with Ian Wolfe.
3: The sea-gypsy Moken people, who live among the islands of Thailand and Myanmar, can see twice as clearly underwater as anybody else, but without needing goggles. They have normal vision above the water. Anna Gilslan of Sweden's Lund University, studied the nomadic hunter-gatherers who dive for tiny shellfish and other food from the ocean floor at depths of down to 23 metres underwater. The children are able to pick out small brown clams from among the small brown stones that the swedish scientists were unable to see even with goggles underwater the human eye normally needs an extra layer of air from goggles to see anything more than a blur this is because the light bends more traveling from air into the eye than from water into the eye the Mokan people have learned to control the muscles around their lenses so that they can voluntarily bend their lenses beyond what untrained people can do more remarkably they have conscious control of the size of their pupils, and they contract their pupils to a tiny dot to better focus the light underwater. It's just like getting a better picture from your camera by using a smaller aperture or hold for the light. Back in Sweden, they're able to teach school children the tricks of shrinking their pupils and bending the lenses more, with about six months of training. The researchers fail to mention that the other time your eye's pupil size changes is when you're more interested in someone. It's a social signal. The dilated pupils of someone who is interested is more attractive. Learning the Moken skill of being able to consciously control your pupils to dilate when you want could give you an edge not only underwater, but in flirting. At the University of California, Berkeley, scientists Stanley, Lee, Dan can jack into brains and extract video. This is a step towards a future portrayed in the movie Strange Days and the movie Brainstorm where not only vision, but all your other sensory experiences could be measured, recorded and played back using superconducting quantum interference devices or squids. Using a squid means that, unlike the Californians, you could pick up a tiny specific brain signal without surgery, wearing a helmet that can pick up the weak magnetic fields. Squeak technology isn't quite good enough for this yet, so they use electrodes. In 1999, the team recorded the electrical signals from 177 neurons in the brains of cats selected for good vision. They recorded the signals from part of the cat's thalamus, which integrates all of the brain's sensory input, while they showed the cat's 16-second movies of indoor and outdoor scenes, trees and faces. By applying mathematical filtering software to the signals, they could generate movies of what the cat had actually seen. The limitations of the early technology meant the movies lacked colour, and they're blurrier than what the cat actually saw. But they've turned out to be stunningly faithful to the original movies. They weren't looking at the cat's memories, but at the signals that were being processed by the cat's brain from its eyes as it watched the movies, seeing what the cat saw. In 1999 they were only able to look at ten neurons at a time and so they couldn't reconstruct the video in real time, but this is an amazing beginning. Sampling more cells will give a clearer picture and colour information. From the structure of cats' eyes, we can guess that they see less of the red and brown than we see, but more of the purple and green. The team have since been recording and decoding other sensors and also looking at sending back encoded signals directly to the nervous system. The future of this technology could see people using their own eyes and brain as a video camera. You'll literally see the director's vision of the movie. For those cat lovers out there, I can assure you that although the experiment might have looked like something out of a clockwork orange, the cats were gently anaesthetised and didn't suffer any, any pain or distress. We now know what raw experience looks like inside the brain of another being. This means that entire philosophies of mind that were based on the idea that internal experience would forever be private, and therefore not subject to objective investigation, have been rendered obsolete. We'll be able to see how other people look at things. The researchers are also working on brain signals controlling prosthetics, such as an artificial larynx, for people who've lost their voice box to cancer. They're working on a wireless brain recording system based on surgically implanting electrodes and a tiny radio transmitter. The raw signals would be picked up by a receiver and decoded by a computer. The first use of this will be to record the complex environmental information that rats sense from their whiskers brushing against things as they move, recording their sense of touch. This technology has the potential to give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and mobility to the paralysed and injured. Being able to record and play back movies, sounds, and maybe one day touch straight to the brain could be the ultimate theatre experience. Decode genes in your bedroom with a CD drive and an inkjet printer. A team at the University of California San Diego have developed a cheap way of testing blood and other biological samples for particular proteins and eventually even genes. At present, the machines to identify molecules and biological samples cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. When CDs are played on a computer CD drive, the computer automatically notes the errors, which are normally thought of as a bad thing. In this system, you inkjet, print, alcohol-based mixture of protein receptors onto the CD from a regular printer with a special cartridge. You dunk it in the biological sample, clean it, and then play it on the computer. The computer counts an error every time a protein molecule binds to the surface and blocks the laser in the CD drive. These protein molecules are glued to the surface so they don't wash off when you clean the disk. You can literally hear the molecules as they've tried playing music CDs to hear the errors. For an example, they are able to detect an enzyme that turns starch into sugar. They had someone spit onto a receptor-printed CD of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, clean it up and then listen for the differences in the music. This is a little like those artists who grow fungus on their music CDs and photo CDs and then play them back for the groovy results of lasers being diffracted by microbes. For more accurate readings, the team have developed software to run on Linux home PCs, comparing the errors and bytes on the CD before and after exposure to a biological sample. They plan to release the software as open source, free to download from the net, so that anybody can play with it.
0: As Australians, we like to throw ourselves into sport at an early age. I can remember putting on, pulling on the soccer boots at the age of five, like so many of my friends. Now, to us, sport comes naturally, and not much thought has to go into how or why our balls or bats or rackets do what they do. We've always just accepted it. Well, Discovery's Phil Dooley has been doing a bit of investigation in this area.
4: I'm here with Rod Cross from the School of Physics at the University of Sydney. I've, I've just seen him walking down the hall bouncing a
5: football, plot, Football, so uh, I thought I'd ask him what's going on. I'm trying to figure out how a football bounces, because when you watch it on uh, the TV, you can't quite figure out what's going on, um, and that's not <coughs> good for a physicist not knowing what's happening, so... It seems, it seems alright to me, He just throw it down, hits the ground and comes back at you? Ah, but that's, that, that's an Aussie, you're an Aussie Rules uh, fan. The other footballers don't do that. We're not talking about soccer players, right? <laughs> We're talking about those oval-shaped, wobbly balls that when they hit the ground, uh, they can go up, sideways, forwards, backwards. It's almost unpredictable, but I mean, physics is, is uh, able to predict things like this. So I, I've been uh, filming lots of bounces of football, and finally figured out actually what happens.
4: Really? So are we getting into chaotic motion there? Uh,
5: It's not chaotic, it just depends, because the ball is usually spinning when it lands, it's very hard to predict which orientation it's going to land, whether it's pointing forwards, upwards or backwards. That's the only chaotic part. But If you keep your eye on the ball, you can sort of see, now this one's going to land forwards, therefore it's going to bounce forwards, or this one's... uh, spinning in such a way that in 3.5 milliseconds it's actually going to land facing backwards and therefore it'll bounce backwards. And this is the kind of stuff that an Aussie rules player running at full tilt down the field does almost by reflex. Uh, They do, but they don't spin the ball when they throw it down. They point it. They throw it down in such a way that when it lands it's pointing back at them and Mm -hmm. therefore (coughs) it will bounce back at them.
4: Right, so you've actually had the camera on this to look at it
5: in great detail. I have, I went to the shop, I bought a football, um, came back to my office, I've got a nice uh, bit of carpet that's uh, perfect, set up the camera, uh, threw the ball down 200 times and then spent the next month seeing what had happened as a result. And any particularly amazing
4: results come out of that? Uh,
5: It's not amazing, it's just simply that when the ball lands, you've got three factors that influence how it's going to bounce. Now, the first thing a footballer wants to know, is it going to bounce forward or backwards? In other words, is he standing on the right side of the ball or should he dive to to grab (laughs) hold of it? So, um, if it's going to bounce, in order to bounce forwards, you need three things altogether or one at a time. One is the ball has to be moving forwards, to bounce forwards, or it's got to be spinning forwards
4: mm-hmm.
5: or it's got to be pointing forwards. Now, if all three things happen at once then it'll definitely bounce forwards. Mm. Uh, if, if one thing is right and two things are wrong, that depends how big the effect is. Right. Now, another thing that can happen is that the ball can uh, hit the ground and bounce a couple of times at normal height and then all of a sudden it bounces way up in the air or it, it does a mully grubber along the ground and just sort of rolls along the ground and then bounces up. So that, that's really surprised me. But I've seen that happen on film and I can see what's happening is that the rotational motion of the ball gets converted to straight vertical linear motion. So that when the ball bounces up very high, it's no longer spinning, it just goes straight up. And vice versa, the, the ball can roll very rapidly along the ground—the mully rubber effect—but um, it, it does so fa- <coughs> fairly slowly. So that's a bit of a Shane Warne flipper, perhaps, same kind of effect. Ah, uh, but uh, well, a Shane Warne kicker—you know, you've got to kick the ball, you know. <laughs> <like that. laughs> so
4: it's the combination of spin and angle and everything. These Aussie rules players are pretty, pretty talented, aren't they?
5: uh i don't know that they're they're talented they know how to kick a ball and catch it and tackle but uh i i I don't see them uh eyeing the ball to try and figure out which direction it's bouncing they sort of surround the ball with their arms and legs and just cross their fingers and hope it's going to bounce towards them i think once they know what the the rules of physics are about the bounce they'll they'll be able to do a lot better Uh
4: aha hear that all you footy players Get in and study physics, and uh, it'll help your game immensely. We've been talking with Professor Rod Cross here. What did the people in the physics department reckon about you kicking a footy around and calling it work?
5: Uh, People were a bit surprised, uh, but uh, they're used to me uh, doing all sorts of weird things in the physics department.
4: (laughs) Thanks a lot, Rod.
0: That was Phil Dooley. (music) Thank <music> you.
2: In 1964, astronomers Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson couldn't figure out the cause of a really annoying hiss of background noise messing up their radio telescope observations. When they finally tracked it down, they realised the hiss was coming from everywhere at once. The noise was coming from the universe. They had literally tripped over the slowly fading explosion of the Big Bang itself. Discovery, the National Science Radio Show. Maybe we're not everywhere in the universe yet, but we are broadcast Australia-wide, bringing you the latest news, views, glamour and gossip from the world of science, thanks to the Community Radio Satellite.
0: Next up, we have Taylor Bildstein, Discovery's remote reporter. And this week, she's talking to Martin Richard George from the Launceston Planetarium, who explains why we sometimes have to view the stars from indoors. My name's Martin Richard
1: George. I'm Curator of Astronomy at the Launceston Planetarium. I'm also Manager of Collections and Information Services at the Queen Victoria Museum, in which the planetarium's housed.
6: What is the planetarium?
1: Basically, a planetarium is a room with a domed ceiling on which we project images of the night sky uh, so that people feel they're outside at night.
6: And in Tasmania, where we have such a clear view of the night sky... What's the advantage to coming indoors to look at a projection of the night sky?
1: Well, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, it never gets cloudy in the planetarium, but also it's a kind of environment where you can teach and educate people about what's up in the sky in easier ways than with the real night sky, where you can have images and arrows and so on up on the, up on the dome because the dome is only a few metres across. Well, our dome's eight metres across. Um, it, it lends itself to ways of explaining things that the real night sky doesn't. And it also means that, you know, children can come in, we can have school groups into the planetarium, for example, to have their astronomy lesson in here. And so they can come during normal normal school time.
6: And do you find those children who come in do develop a really serious interest sometimes in astronomy and space science?
1: Well, sometimes they do. It's not just an interest in astronomy, though. I, I think a lot of scientists start off with an interest in astronomy when they're young because the night sky's up there for all to see. They can look at the star patterns. I mean, that's how I started out. I remember drawing uh, star charts uh, one day when I was six years old. Other scientists have started off like that and then branched off into, into you know, geology, uh, other branches of physics, chemistry and so on. So astronomy often gets people involved in science.
6: Can you describe your typical day?
1: Gosh, my typical day. Unfortunately, I'm I'm probably doing far more administrative work than I'd really like to be as an astronomer at the moment, but that's a, as a result of my current uh, duties here at the museum. I also deal with a lot of inquiries, uh, public inquiries about astronomy, when's the next full moon, when did the sun rise on such and such a date in a certain year uh, from, from Hobart or Melbourne or Bermuda or someplace around the world. We at the Planetarium don't just deal with running shows for, for schools and the public. We actually provide a lot of information to the community at large. So, for example, all the, the sunrise and sunset times around Tasmania, moonrise and moonset times that you see in the newspapers and so on, all come from here. But uh, on a more serious note, I occasionally have to deal with legal cases as well. For example, if there's a road accident or, unfortunately, in some cases, if there's been a serious injury or death Astronomy comes into it. Most commonly in a legal case it's a matter of how much could have been seen at a given place uh, by some witness who might re- might have said he recognised somebody or something like that and, uh, and unfortunately this does go to the level of um, road deaths and murders from time to time.
6: What kind of discoveries have Tasmanians contributed to in astronomy?
1: The first one that that comes to mind really is um, that they took a major role in fact in the discovery of Pluto's atmosphere about 15 years ago. The planet Pluto passed in front of a star and uh, at that stage we expected that the star would just blink out all of a sudden as it passed behind what we thought was an icy rocky mix uh, with no atmosphere. But when astronomers watched the star's light dimming the star's light actually dimmed slowly rather than suddenly, and that was an indication that the, the, there was an a- atmosphere around Pluto. In other words, the star was being dimmed by something that was getting thicker and thicker as, as Pluto passed in front of it in different positions. And, uh, and so that's been uh, a very important uh, contribution towards uh, towards our knowledge of Pluto. In fact, the observations from Tasmania uh, were largely used to sort of set an upper limit on the size of Pluto's atmosphere. Now, that kind of observation is very important, when you're going to send spacecraft out there and you want to know what to expect when the spacecraft arrives. And it's uh, largely as as a result of the the team of people that made these observations from Tasmania and various other places uh, that we know a lot more about what to expect when the the Pluto Express mission, which hopefully will get off the ground, arrives at Pluto in around about uh, 12 or 13 years'
0: time. It takes a long time to get out to Pluto.
6: Martin George, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. And that was Taylor Bildstein talking to Martin Richard George, curator of the Lawn System Planetarium. 60 Seconds
6: The perfect recipe for making babies. Boy meets girl and the rest is history. Well, that's what it used to be. Now, according to fertility specialists, there's another way. This time, it's girl meets girl. Even though it sounds biologically impossible, researchers from Cornell University in New York have produced a mouse that was created with the genetic material of two female cells, no sperm. The thought of applying this technology to humans horrifies many experts. However, others believe that such a development could optimise fertility techniques and make animal cloning more efficient. Nonetheless, the results are a bit shaky with just a 1 in 200 success rate. This new technique raises obvious ethical issues for the future of human society, which could explain why experts are so horrified. However, one could simply come to the conclusion that they are males who are scared of becoming redundant.
0: 60 Second Science
2: Amanda Radd from Our Lady of Mercy College. 60 Second Science is brought to you by high school students enrolled in the University of Sydney's course problem-solving, and communication
7: in science. Oh, no.
2: Did you know that humans and bananas share over 50% of their DNA? Discovery. Proud to be just a bunch of mutant banana people.
0: And that's all we have time for on this edition of Discovery. If you'd like any information on any of the stories we've featured today, if you'd like to complain that NASA have only named one space shuttle after us, or if you'd like some ripping photos of Leighton Stewart's wedding, you can reach us at discovery2ser.com. Warming the seats on this week's show were Ian Wolfe, Phil Dooley and Taylor Bildstein. This week I cobbled Discovery together myself. While looking at the wonderful view atop of two SER studios in Sydney, Discovery is also broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Matthew Clark and I expect to see you back here next week for another exciting edition of Discovery.
7: Thank you.